we left off last at Mark chapter 13, and I think it was the late uh, summer of 2023 before we took a look at uh, who we were in Christ. We did a series, New in Christ, um, and then we moved in towards uh, studying Ruth and the Advent season. But we are picking back up with Mark, and let me just tell you why we do that if you're new to River of Life. We preach and teach God's Word systematically and expositionally. We believe uh, that the Bible is the very Word of God, and we believe in teaching the whole counsel of God. And so we teach from the Old Testament, we teach from New Testament, and we also take time to, uh, to share with you what we believe are practical series for your faith, like New in Christ, where we really looked at various aspects of what it means for you to follow Christ. What does that mean practically in your life? Well, this morning we are stepping back into Mark, as I mentioned. Mark is one of four historical accounts, what we call Gospels, of Jesus' life and ministry and his death. And to give you a a brief synopsis, a little bit of overview, Jesus' ministry has uh, lasted about three years. As we come to chapter 14... Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem. It's the last week of his life. He's getting ready to celebrate the Passover with his disciples. And he's staying in a little town, a little town called Bethany, where he is uh, staying with friends and he is coming into the city. And it's at this time, just before we left off, maybe you remember from your lessons of learning about Jesus' life, that Jesus went and cleansed the temple. That had just happened, and when Jesus cleansed the temple, he was confronted by the Jewish leaders, and they very specifically asked him, who gave you the authority to do these things, to preach, to teach, to cleanse the temple? And they were livid with Jesus. It's not an exaggeration to say that the leaders of the Jewish people hated Jesus so much that they wanted to kill him. And that's exactly where we're going to pick up today. So we begin chapter 14. This is going to be the climax of Mark's gospel. We're going to look at Jesus' crucifixion, his burial, his resurrection, and maybe just kind of as a, uh, a, uh, a plan of where we're going to go, beginning today and marching towards Easter, where we'll cover Jesus' resurrection. We will be looking at Mark, and we will arrive at... Easter Sunday, exactly with the text and Jesus' resurrection here in Mark. So let's read God's word together. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 10. This is the word of the Lord. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him, meaning Jesus, by stealth and to kill him. For they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, and as he was reclining at a table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. 
Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing for me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body before uh, burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Let's pray. Father, we now turn to the preaching of your word. We believe, God, that you speak to us through your word. We believe that your word is literally the word of life. And so now we come to your word and we ask that you open our hearts and open our eyes to see and to understand so that we might respond to you today. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Let me ask you a question. When was the last time you had a very sharp disagreement with somebody in your life? If you're married, perhaps with your spouse. Let me give you a minute to think on that. Because I want you to really process... When was the last time you really had a sharp disagreement with someone? And as you're thinking about that, let me just ask you. And if you're trying to think, when was the last one? Here's one thing I know. You've had a disagreement. And when you've disagreed, what are your feelings like? What are your emotions like in the middle of that disagreement? Kind of heated. The word in this passage actually mentions the flaring of the nostrils. The disciples were so indignant. I don't know if you've seen somebody literally breathing heavier, nostrils flaring, face getting red. I can remember the first major disagreement Des and I had living in Vietnam. Uh, you remember what it's about, Desiree? Tell, uh, tell, tell the audience what kind of major important thing we really had a falling out over. Do you remember? Yeah, yeah. Tell what, what was it about? Oh, the Mao. Okay, the Mao. See, there's more than one disagreement. Yeah, <laughs> I remember that. What came to my mind was when we uh, we. Uh, Vietnam is at a different uh, electric current, and we plugged in our brand new speakers from the U.S. that we had just brought over. Thought, these are my new babies, and invest all the money. We plugged them into the wrong current, and boom! That was the last we ever heard. We never got to test out those speakers. The, I, they exploded pretty well, but we, we never did get to try them out. The reason I share that and, and invite you to feel those feelings is, one, because all of us have been in a conversation, especially with those that are really close. That's what I think what makes it so frustrating is that when we, we're with, uh, we have a disagreement with somebody that for the most part, we always share unity when we hit on that one thing, especially when it's unexpected, that tempers begin to flare, that emotions get involved. 
Unfortunately, in our sin nature, we debate about things like speakers or maps. Uh, but the text today, we're going to examine what we call scandal in Bethany. And it's a story about a disagreement between Jesus and his disciples about perfume. Perfume. And what we're going to drive at is that Mark thinks this is a really important text for us. As, he's, as Mark is finishing up the narrative, as, as we take a step forward today in chapter 14 to begin to unfold the rest of the story of Jesus, his crucifixion, his burial, and his resurrection, Mark adds this very interesting story. And the way that Mark writes this passage, so if you notice, there's kind of like three little scenes to open chapter 14. There's the little scene of, of the religious leaders getting together and, and making a, a decision to, to uh, want to kill Christ. There's this uh, a change of scene, and now we're in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper. And, and this is actually the story that has the, 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 the most content to it. And then we close with this betrayal of Judas. Now what we have behind here, if you're wondering what this is, this is what we call a Markin sandwich. I didn't make that up. I'm not trying to be cool. But what Mark does, in fact, nine times in the Gospel of Mark, let me tell you what a sandwich is. Mark tells or introduces a story, inserts another story, and the question the, the, the reader has to ask, what is the relevance? How does this fit in? And then he closes the story. You can see that the first two are related. We could see that the, uh, the religious leaders wanting to, or coming to a conclusion to want to kill Jesus in verses 1 and 2 are directly related to verses 10 and 11, where Judas determined to betray Jesus. And in the middle, we have this story of the debate about some perfume. And what we want to do in the text today, one thing about the scriptures is... There, there is no frivolous or superfluous material. Mark is writing this story of Jesus because he wants us to understand Jesus and understand it on the terms of those who are actually uh, living at the time. And he tells us this really important story. And so the goal of our time in the Word today is that we want to, be, uh, to begin to look at and ask the question... What is Mark wanting us to see in the middle? What's the story of the debate about perfume? How does it relate to the, the Jewish leaders, to Judas' betrayal? And what should we learn from this story in the middle? If we just look at the, the text chronologically, it's quite simple. Verses 1 to 2, Jewish leaders conspire to kill Jesus. Verses 3 to 9, the scandal of the nard. That's what the perfume is called, nard or spike nard. Verses 10 to 11, Judas determines to betray Jesus. That's how our uh, passage unfolds. We're going to take a look at it a little bit different. We're going to take a look first at verses 1 and 2, then verses 10 to 11, and then we're going to come back to focus the bulk of our time on unpacking that middle. So let's begin. Let's look at verses 1 and 2. The Jewish leaders conspire to kill Jesus. Jesus. Now the text tells us that it's two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. 
We know that Jesus has uh, come to Jerusalem. He's, this is literally the last week of his life. We know that, that Jesus has come to celebrate the Passover. If you're familiar with the Passover, the Passover is the celebration for the Jewish people. The Passover celebrates that time uh, back in Israel's history where uh, while they are in slavery to uh, the Egyptians, that God is going to send an angel that is going to pass over the houses who respond in God to faith, offer a sacrificial lamb, paint the blood over the doors, and it's called the Passover. It becomes the, the singular event that foreshadows what God is going to do in the New Testament where Jesus will become our Passover. Jesus will become the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And they have a whole week that they celebrate this feast. It's the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. You think, what exactly does that mean? Well, if you know what uh, uh, leaven is, leaven is, uh, what is the stuff in the bread that makes it rise? Yeast. Okay. That, uh, I'm so biblical, I can't even think of just uh, English terms. Uh, sorry, sorry for that. Uh, yeast. The Jews would take all of the yeast out of their house as a symbol to, uh, to say that they had to leave Egypt in such haste that they didn't even have an opportunity for the bread that they made that morning to rise, right? This is a culture where they're not going out and buying bread from the bakery. They're making their bread in the morning. And so to celebrate this feast, they would have seven days of the Feast of the Unleavened Bread they would remove all of the yeast from their house. It was a symbol that uh, in response to God and in faith, we left Egypt uh, so quickly that we didn't even have time to take the food with us. We didn't even have time to take the bread that was rising. So this is where we're at. And the chief priests and the scribes, it says, they wanted to arrest Jesus by stealth and to kill him. This plot has been building up really since the beginning of the gospel. And by the gospel, I mean this gospel of Mark that we're studying. Really, since the moment that Jesus began to preach and to teach and, to, and to perform miracles publicly, he begins to face the opposition of the Jewish leaders and those who recognize if Jesus is doing these things, if Jesus is teaching these things, where does that leave us? And so Jesus begins to have significant pushback. In Mark 11, 18 and 19, uh, if we just look last in, in the, the, I would say the most previous contexts, it says this, And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowds was astonished at his teaching. And so if we just look into the past, in Mark 11, we already know the chief priests have determined, we need to destroy this man. And when it comes to Mark chapter 14, this is as official as it gets. If, if this was not the Jews, but the mafia, we would call this a hit. This is the official uh, approval from the highest authorities of the Jewish people that Jesus needs to die. So this is as official as it gets. It says the chief priests and the scribes. This is what we call the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin has literally, as these guys have just met, made it official. Jesus is going to die. We just need the first opportunity of how to do it. And then you notice what is the problem. The problem is they recognize it's the Passover. This is the feast. This is where all of the people from all over Israel have come to Jerusalem. At this time, for this feast, for that one week, the population 
of Jerusalem swells by five to six times its normal population. It is full of people. And if you, read, if you paid attention when we read Mark 11, what's clear is that there's many people who have embraced Jesus. And this is the chief priest's fear. He says, we need to kill him, but we can't do it now because if we do it now, we'll face the people. So the decision has been made. It's official. There's a hit out on Jesus' life. When you have opportunity, it doesn't matter who it is among us. But if we have opportunity, we need to take Jesus' life. But the one thing they knew they could not risk was a riot. Because at the same time where you have five to six uh, times the normal population in Jerusalem, guess what you also had? The Romans also fortified Jerusalem with more soldiers than they ever did at any point in time of the year. And what was their one job? To prevent a riot. Because this would bring down the heavy hand of the Roman rule on the Jews. So this is their decision, but this is also their problem. This is verses 1 and 2. Mark introduces to the fact that it's official. Jesus will die. Now, shortly after the leaders of the Jewish people had come to this decision... They probably couldn't believe what we might call their good luck. Because lo and behold, right after they had made this decision, and the one piece that was missing is, how do we do it? How do we kill him? In the middle of the Passover, how do we arrest him secretly, and how do we bring his life to an end? Well, lo and behold, one of Jesus' very own disciples, a man named Judas comes looking for them. And he tells him, I'll turn them over. I'm done. I don't know what the full conversation was like, but what we knew was there was a deal that was struck. Judas would turn over Jesus. He would betray Jesus. He would receive money from the, the leaders of Israel, and Jesus would be killed. This is, the, in a sense, if you want to think of the sandwich... The two pieces of bread. This is the, the story that Mark opens with, and here is the story that Mark closes with. The decision has been made. Jesus will be killed. Here's how it will be done. One of his own will betray him. And then there's the story in the middle. Now, just in, uh, maybe before we go on, I didn't want to focus here. I mean, there's, as you come to a text, there's, there's multiple ways and, and, and avenues that we could go down. Let me just stop for a moment on Judas before we go too far. When we look at Judas, how many of you have heard of this term, deconstructing your faith? It's all the rage right now. It's those who have been in the faith, who leave the faith, and we even have a name for it now. It's called deconstructing your faith. If you haven't seen that, uh, simply put that into a search engine Go on Instagram, go on uh, the, uh, YouTube, you will find all kinds of stories deconstructing, of people deconstructing their faith. Let me just settle into that for a second. When we talk about Judas, and we talk about the fact that he betrayed Jesus and he denied his faith, it really comes down to one simple reason. And in my personal opinion, it's the same reason why every single person deconstructs their faith. It's because 
At the center of their faith is not Jesus, but them. Judas was at the center of his faith in Jesus. The reason every single person who deconstructs their faith, deconstructs or walks away, is not because Jesus is at the center of their faith. It's because they were at the center of their faith. They began to follow Jesus. They followed Christian things. But at the moment where Jesus begins to lead them in a way or their journey leads them not just towards the kingdom but to trials and persecution or to the things that they don't want to hear or to submit to, they deconstruct their faith and then they take their reasons of all the reasons why God was not good or God was not fair. So we very often see people in the Christian faith But ultimately, their faith is about them. It's not about Christ. And ultimately, time will tell whether every person's uh, pursuit of Christ was built on Christ or them. It's really that simple. Time will tell. Fruit will be seen. People suddenly just don't lose their faith. What it shows is when they followed Christ, the foundation they built on was themselves with Jesus added. And that is a foundation that will, is shifting like sand. Because what I can tell you is the word of God stands and remains unchanged. Jesus never deviates from what he asks of you. But if you follow Jesus based upon what you want God to be for you, if you follow a prosperity gospel, if you follow a gospel that is about the kingdom but is not about the trials and tribulations, what you will find is this. When your journey doesn't take you where you want to go, guess who you follow? Yourself. Judas did not like the return on his investment at the end of the day, and he abandoned Jesus and his friends. It's that simple. Every story is a little bit nuanced, but here's what I know. Those who have genuinely built their faith on Christ never leave Christ. Those who build their faith on themselves, they will find a thousand different reasons. You could find a thousand reasons. In fact, I I watched a video on this the other day, totally unrelated to the sermon. But they said, "There's, there's no right way to deconstruct your faith. Everyone can have their own reasons. And if that's true, guess what? You are never building your faith on Jesus. You are building it on all of the reasons of why you wanted to follow and what you thought would happen if you followed Christ. But it's not true faith. Let's move on because I want to get to the heart of the sermon today. And this is the scandal of the nard or the scandal of the perfume. I want to read verses 3 through 9 again just to have it fresh in your memory. It says this, While he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, and as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment, pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to them in themselves indignantly. Notice they said to themselves indignantly. Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have never uh, could have been sold. Excuse me, could have been sold for three hundred denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, "Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you will always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me." She has done what she could. She has anointed my body before burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the world, what she has done will be told in her memory. Just a few comments about these verses before we get into interpretation. Notice the setting. 
Bethany, once again, uh, Bethany is on, a, is on a, uh, a, kind of a mountain, a hill that overlooks Jerusalem. Jesus is, is making this his base as he's traveling each day into the city for the Passover or for the, the, the various events going on. And notice specifically it says at the house of Simon the leper. Now, if Simon was still a leper, they wouldn't be at his house celebrating. It wouldn't be uh, according to the Jewish laws of, of uh, purification or purity to be in this man's house. So we know that Simon is somebody that Jesus has healed. He's a leper that Jesus has healed. It might be very likely that as a result of him being healed, he is holding a dinner party in Jesus' honor. We don't know uh, how all this fits, but if you want to look at what we call parallel passages, we have parallel passages, or what I mean by that is the same story in the book of John or the book of uh, Matthew, different accounts. John makes clear that where they're at, they're celebrating with Mary and Martha and Lazarus, which has led many people to ask, is Simon, is this leper the the father of Lazarus, Mary, and Martha? Because they are at his house. Usually, women are not receiving an invitation. Women Women are in the presence of these men when they are serving. That's the context of the Bible times. So why was this woman there? Was she just... A, a normal uh, servant in the house? Was she a member of the household? Or perhaps was this actually the home of Lazarus, Martha, and Mary, whose father happened to be Simon the leper? We don't know, but what we see is this is a change of setting. And what we also see, uh, I, I mentioned that at a dinner party, once again, this is Jewish cu- culture, Jewish context. The men would have been with the men. They would have been a, a, a table kind of laid out on, on the, the, the ground. They're reclining. And we don't know all the circumstances, but somehow in the middle of this meal, a woman walks in. I told you from John, we know the woman by name. It's Mary of Mary and Martha, the two sisters who we've seen in other, uh, the other gospels. And it's Mary who comes in. In the middle of their celebration, she takes this, this bottle or this flask of this perfume. Now this, this perfume is called nard or spike nard. If you're wondering about this, what we know is it's a root from a tree that comes from either Arabia or India. We don't know which. They would take that, uh, that root. They would press it. Out of that root, they would get oil. And you can imagine how many dry roots you have to press to be able to get oil to be able to fill a flask. But what we also know the Bible times is that women typically didn't have the ability to have a job where they would be able to earn enough money to own this flask. It was very likely a family heirloom or treasure. It was the one thing that when you walk in, it's like, have you, have you seen their bottle? I don't know what your treasure is, whether it's your big TV uh, I don't know what you want people to look at. Here's, here's our art collection. In this home, their treasure, whether it was out for display or whether it was hidden away, was this little bottle of perfume called Nard. I don't know if it was planned. I don't know if, if it was just, in a, in a sense, an overflow of Mary's desire to show Jesus her love for him. But what we know is that she walks in, possibly from from serving, 
or possibly because it's her home, she breaks the neck of the bottle, and uh, the text here tells us she pours it on his head. We also, in other accounts, know that she pours it on his feet. She empties the bottle completely. When I was getting prepared today, I, I made a little spritz of cologne. I walked through it, and it, here's what I know. A tiny spritz, and, and in, in about six months, I'd used about that much of my cologne. But every time I do, it, the room smells. And I'm hoping maybe that I smell a little bit when I walk around. I know that uh, today, Sally put a little perfume on, and Ezra's like, ooh, the perfume. <laughs> the reason I mention that, could you imagine being at a dinner table? And can you imagine an entire bottle of concentrated, intense perfume being poured out in front of you? Probably lose your appetite. I, I can guarantee you, in fact, the, the account of John tells us the entire house smelled of perfume. And here we are. We're at Simon the leper's house. It appears to be a dinner party, most likely celebrating Jesus Celebrating the fact that Simon has been healed, that has some of the people that we know, like Mary and Martha, and the family heirloom, the family treasure, the, the most expensive thing that that family owns was all of a sudden picked up by Mary. It was broken, it was offered, and she pours it out in front of Jesus. I don't know how you feel. I know how I feel when I, when I think I get a good Christmas gift for my wife and my kids. And I'm like, oh, go ahead and open it up. I'm excited. Can you imagine Mary's feeling when immediately disciples, not saying to her, it says they said to themselves, which I find fascinating. Have you ever had this happen? Somebody doesn't talk to you, but they talk about you in front of you? So we have the disciples, and it doesn't tell us who. It says some. Once again, going to the parallel accounts, it was headed by Judas. Judas seems to be the primary voice of either all the disciples or maybe those sitting next to him, where they begin to out loud express their, their displeasure. Once again, what a bunch of wimps. Not to her, about her, in front of her, amongst their friends. And the heart of this passage really comes down to this conversation that is going to happen next. Because we have the disciples saying it was a waste. And we have Jesus actually stand up for Mary and said, no, no. What she did was beautiful. And this is where I, I invited you to think about the last time you had a disagreement. Because I promise you around that table was not warm, happy, fuzzy feelings of how much I love Jesus. But there was anger at the waste. There was a disagreement between the disciples and Jesus, if you can imagine that. Where disciples say one thing, and Jesus is going to say another. And we are left with this story to say, and what does Mark want to us to see in the story of the perfume? So let's just talk about the disciples' response. It says they were indignant. I told you already that when I say indignant, this wasn't just a matter of opinion. It literally... The word here is talking about anger to the point your nostrils are flaring. Maybe you don't get that heated when you argue. I know I very rarely say, talk about anything, whether it's an argument or the pizza I like, without getting excited. But we can tell that the disciples' response isn't just a conversation. Like, well, that, was, that wasn't the best use of it. We know that they were vehement. And they wanted Mary to hear. And they said it out loud. 
They told her that the literal word is that you wasted. So this ointment could have been sold for 300 denarii. 300 denarii at the time would have been about 300 days wages. 300 days. So it's, it's, if you think about the fact that we don't work every day, 300 days wages would have been over a year's worth of money. I told you at this time and in this culture, it would not be uh, a, a, a normal opportunity for a woman like Mary to have worked and to possess that. That was not the place uh, in their culture of where women were outside the home working and earning the income. At the Passover was also a time, you know at Christmas that oftentimes we remember the poor? And oftentimes at Christmas that we will uh, think about, w- w- in this time of celebration, what are we doing for the poor? We might go out in the streets, we might uh, make food, we might give meals. It was the same during Passover. At Passover was a special time to remember the poor. And so you think, well, why was this connection made in their minds? Is because Judas and apparently some of the disciples were saying, listen, it's the Passover. This woman takes this bottle, breaks the whole thing, and pours it out. It's worth more than a whole year's salary. Wouldn't that money have been better spent in investing in the poor? And what they're saying is this is excessive. There there was a practice that if you wanted to honor a guest, that you could take oil and you could anoint their head when they walk in. They got to be thinking, why didn't you just do what's normal? He's a guest. We're honoring him. Fine. Take out the oil. Anoint his head. Tell him he's a special guest. Why break the perfume bottle? So they said it was wasted. They said it was excessive. And as a result, they scolded her. They belittled her. They told her what she was doing was wrong. But once again, not to her face. (laughs) They talked about her in front of her amongst themselves and her hearing. And I can't imagine how that must have devastated Mary. To take her offering and her gift. And I don't think she offered this looking for an applause. But can you imagine to, to lay out your most precious treasure in front of your Lord and immediately the response in the room is simply an argument that turns into a debate about what you did, was, whether it was right or not? So let's take a look at Jesus because Jesus is going to challenge the disciples' interpretation of Mary's act. Jesus says, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? Jesus uses this word. He says, her act was beautiful. And I want us to see three ways in which Mary's act was selfless and beautiful. In verse 7, Jesus accepts Mary's prioritizing him above the poor. So the first thing that Jesus does is he accepts her offering. Unlike the disciples who, who said, this was excessive, this was unneeded. At this time of the year... At Passover, you wouldn't remember the poor? Do you know how much good this could do if she would have simply sold it? Wouldn't that be an offering far greater in God's eyes to take care of the poor? You need to see the first thing that Jesus does is he accepts her offering and he accepts her prioritizing him above the poor. And just a theological note, in doing this, Jesus makes clear that Mary is worshiping no mere man. 
Because if it was just Jesus is a man and the poor are men and women, and it's a comparison, it would be wrong for Jesus to say, I deserve more than them. But if Jesus is no mere man, if Jesus is God in the flesh, then Mary has stumbled on to something, not stumbled, Mary is, has taken something in uh, it, what she has seen and known about Jesus. Her brother has been raised from the dead. The house of the person that they're in has been cured of leprosy, whether that's her father or a relation or a friend, I don't know. But Mary has seen firsthand, like many others, and what that's done to her heart is she is convinced that Jesus is worthy of this offering. And what we can say theologically is Jesus affirms, I am no mere human. I'm no mere person. Secondly, Jesus receives the anointing as preparation for burial. Jesus has been saying all along throughout the book of Mark, telling his disciples that when we get to Jerusalem, I will die and I will be buried and I will rise again. The disciples have been slow to understand this. But what we see here is that Jesus receives her pouring out this perfume as anointing for his burial. Here's why that's beautiful, and here's why it's important, and you shouldn't miss it. Jesus was going to be crucified like a common criminal. And those who are crucified like a common criminal are buried like a common criminal. No anointing, no burial, nothing besides the criminal's death and the criminal's barrier that the Romans think they deserve. How beautiful in God's wisdom and in God's goodness That before his death, Jesus is given not a criminal's anointing before his burial, or or a criminal's burial, but he's given a, a burial honored by God with Mary pouring out her greatest treasure on his head and on his feet. Jesus accepts her anointing as preparation. Lastly, we see that Jesus commends Mary's offering as of the precious perfume. It's almost like Jesus doubles down. It's not that he just has a disagreement with his disciples. Jesus doubles down and he says, listen, wherever this gospel is proclaimed, the story of what this woman did will be proclaimed as well. Jesus wants to make it clear that not only is he receiving her gift, not only is he receiving the fact that she's anointed him, but he's going to commend it as an example to follow and saying, this is so important of what she has done for me that I'm commending it as an example to follow that others would also give their best. So Jesus commends. Three reasons why Jesus disagrees. Instead of saying it's a waste, he says it's beautiful. He accepts prioritizing or her prioritizing over the poor. He receives the anointing as preparation for burial. He commends Mary's offering of the precious perfume. So now we've arrived at the end. And I said from the very beginning, our goal was to take a look at Mark and to ask the question, why has Mark inserted this story, this debate about the perfume, in between the story of the the religious leaders putting out a hit on Jesus' life and the story of the betrayal? That's where we need to finish. What is Mark wanting us to see and to understand? I would suggest to you that the reason Mark places this story at the center, the reason Mark uses this unique literary device, which we call the Markin sandwich, 
is because Mark wants to focus the reader's eyes on a picture of true worship. We see the response of the Jewish leaders to Jesus. It's deep hatred. They hate him so deeply they want him dead. We see Mary's response. It's deep devotion. Mary loves Jesus so much that her natural response, not her forced response, Jesus didn't go in there and demand anything, but Mary's natural response The overflow of her heart from how she responded to who Jesus was and who she understood him to be was deep devotion of of giving her very best. We see Judas deeply disillusioned by pursuing Christ yet building his faith on himself. Three different responses that you notice in all three of these stories. A deep hatred, a deep devotion. We see a deep delusionment. Mark wants us to focus on which of those is the true picture of worship. And as I end, I, what I want to see is, isn't that the question that we're really asking here? What does it look like to worship Jesus? What kind of worship is Jesus worthy of? That was the question then. That Mark seems to be drawing our eyes to. And it's the question now as we sit here thousands of years later. What kind of worship, what kind of response should our lives have to Jesus? You know, it's interesting, and I think it's a principle that we want to draw out of this, is that in the same way that when we go shopping... And when we evaluate something, when we go shopping, the price that we pay or the price that we're willing to pay is really an evaluation of the item that we want to purchase. So when we go shopping today, whether it's food shopping or whether it's clothes shopping, whether it's car shopping, there's the item and then there's the price. And then there's us who sits there and thinks, is the price worth the item. When it comes to worship, one of the things that Mary's gift teaches us is that the value of the gift reflects the value of the person to whom it is given. Mary stands alone in that room that day with the disciples, by the way. Mary is not one of the twelve. She definitely is a disciple. She's not one of Jesus' twelve. Mary stands alone in that room that day of placing the proper evaluation on Jesus. The disciples were certainly followers. But one thing that I want you to see. Learning to worship Jesus is a lifelong journey. The disciples followed Jesus. In fact, they actually got his identity right. Remember if we rewind back to Mark chapter 8, where Jesus invites the disciples to say, Who do you say that I am? And Peter steps up, and he takes a step of faith. He says, You're the Christ. In fact, every single one of Jesus' disciples had committed their lives when Jesus invited them to follow, follow. We have, in this room, 12 disciples have chosen to follow Jesus. We have disciples who have actually identified Jesus as the Christ. But we only have one person who properly assigned Jesus' value 
who he was as a person with the right kind of worship. And so as we close, I want you to be encouraged, and I also want to put a challenge in front of you. I want you to be encouraged that no matter where you're at right now, much like the disciples, when we begin to follow Christ, there's a maturing process that needs to take place in every single one of our lives to be able to learn what it looks like to live a life that truly understands, estimates, begins to comprehend and understand the immeasurable value of Jesus Christ. We see in front of us a picture of 12 men, 11 who remain with Jesus, one who's going to betray, that were following Jesus, that understood who he was, but still didn't understand what it looked like to give him their all. We see a picture of Mary who did, was not forced to give the perfume, but out of her deep love for Jesus, she wants to give it. So as... We make this practical. Let me just put in front of you three questions to help you discern where am I at with my own worship of Jesus? If Mark was directing our eyes at this middle story, one of the questions I want to ask you is where are you at with your own worship of Jesus? Let me give you three practical ways, and I'll give you a minute to think about these. I want to invite you to speak to God about three areas of your life, which we call the three T's. We've talked about this at River of Life, your time, your talent, your treasure. I want you to ask God when it comes to your worship. We see how Mary responded to Jesus, and she takes the most valued possession that she has, and she gladly offers it to him. And we see the disciples who weren't there just yet. But one of the things, let me just tell you about the disciples. They weren't there then. Every single one of those disciples would lay down their lives apart from John, who endures persecution, who endures exile, and then dies a natural death. Every single one of them would get to the point where Jesus became their everything. And they laid down their everything out of worship for Jesus. They weren't there then, but Jesus would bring them to the point where they would. Right now, as you sit here, What are three ways that you could think about your worship? What about your time? Is God honored by the way that you're spending your time as an act of worship? Speaking to how you value him. Speaking to whether he is immeasurably worth your very best. I know that the bulk of your time you'll spend at work. But I also know that there's probably prime time in your day to say, where is the time? Does Jesus get the best of your time? Does Jesus get the best of you? What about your talents? You have skills, you have abilities, you have spiritual gifts. I want to ask you right now, is God honored by the way that you are using your your talents, your abilities, your gifts, and your spiritual gifts? Is God getting the best of you? And what about your treasure? We don't talk about tithing very much because we preach expositionally here at River of Life. When it's in the text, I teach on it. But here's a very specific way that you could think about. We never hear talk about what percentage you should give. But one of the things I would invite you 
is the way that you're using the funds that God gives you, is it speaking to his immeasurable worth or does it speak to the things that you have made your idols in your pursuits? Is God honored by the way that you're using your treasure? And here's the closing question. What needs to change so that you could offer God your very best? What needs to change if you're going to offer God your very best? Let's close in prayer. God, we praise you for your word and we praise you for how it challenges us. Today we take the stories, this narrative that Mark is telling of how Jesus is marching towards his crucifixion, his burial, and his resurrection. And in the middle, Mark stops. He invites us into this home in Bethany where there's a disagreement about the perfume. But we recognize there's something much more going on in the story. It's really about the disagreement of what you are worth of how we value Jesus Christ in our life and the kind of treasure that we lay in front of him. God, I pray that every single one of us would think about these questions of our time, our talent, and our treasure. And I pray that in your grace and not out of, uh, not out of pressure, not out of guilt, but out of love and an overflow of our hearts, I pray that we would learn to give you our very best. So the world might see what an immeasurable and incomparable treasure Jesus Christ is. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen.